Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar uh, or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> Just like birds of a feather, we too have followed the golden sun. It feels so good knowing the watchman's gone. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates the work of Gordon Lightfoot song by song, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and along with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Cleveland, Ohio, Quentin Paul Kuntz. Quentin, welcome to Carefree Highway Revisited. Very glad to be here. How did you first get into Gordon Lightfoot's music? Well, I knew his early hits, probably like most people, through Peter, Paul, and Mary, who had huge hits with three of his songs, I believe, and some other people. But I, it's a great story. I was sitting in a coffee house in South Haven, Michigan, which is on Lake Michigan, and we were supposed to go on a, a sailing trip, and we got rained out. So we're in the coffee house, and over the speakers came... Canadian Railroad Trilogy, and it completely blew me away. I never heard a song like that that was, you know, 12-string, acoustic, and long. That hooked me. That was the hook, that tune. And that's, I mean, an epic song. And I use the word epic advisedly because it really does have, you know, strains of Greek epic stuff in it. What do you like about Lightfoot's music generally? Without question, the lyrics. Obviously, he's a great songwriter. And remember, he does not collaborate with anyone. Uh, he does some covers. He's had offers for decades. People say, let's write a song together. He doesn't write a song that I know of with anybody else. But it's his lyrics. I consider him not only a great songwriter and a performer, but actually a tremendous poet. He really does have that gift. And the fact that you can fit things as poetic into the forms that he manages. I mean, that is exceptionally talented of him. Now, you have kind of reached a pinnacle in terms of seeing Lightfoot live recently, have you not? Yes. Last Saturday in Akron, Ohio, I attended my 100th Gordon Lightfoot concert. That many. Wow. How was the show? Fantastic. And guess what song he played first as we were getting in our seats? I would say either Canadian Railroad Trilogy or the one we're going to be talking about today, The Watchman's Gone. The latter. All right. And we will talk more about that at some length. Now, you said in Akron. Now, is that where you've seen most of the shows or have they been all over the place? I've seen Mr. Lightfoot in 17 states, two provinces, and also in England. Oh, wow. Now, the venue where you saw it in, in Akron, was that about the average size for a Lightfoot show? Very much so. It's called the Goodyear Hall. 
I have seen him at festivals. He doesn't do those much anymore. Probably none because they're outside. But I've seen him at festivals with eight, 10,000 people. But, you know, he just traditionally plays like auditoriums, of course, in a proscenium stage setup. But I've probably seen him outside of the 100 concerts, maybe 10 at various festivals, mainly in Michigan. And that's where I met him. But I've seen him in Toronto three times at Massey Hall, which everyone should see Massey Hall if you can. It's historic. It's beautiful. Well, and it's just reopened after a couple of years of renovation. Now, is that like the ultimate place to see Lightfoot? Or is there one place that stands out to you as being like the ideal venue? Maybe it's Massey Hall, maybe it's someplace else. Well, Massey is interesting because he's playing to his hometown crowd. And I've been going backstage for 40 some years because Gordon and I became friends. And that's a whole cool story. But I got back there one year, I'd say it was in the mid 80s. And all these relatives and friends of his from his hometown, other people were like, I mean, they were like surrounding him. And I remember him yelling to his handlers saying, I'm out of (laughs) here. He didn't want to talk to 50 people. But Massey was a special place. It's almost like a crusade to go up there, like a pilgrimage to see Massey Hall. I have to say the best venue I ever saw him in was the first time I saw him in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I forget what it was called, but it's now called DeVos Hall. But that was the first time I saw him in concert. And I think I almost darn near levitated. (laughs) (laughs) At least a little bit. Now, was that because of the music or because of the venue? Oh, the whole gestalt. Here was a guy that uh, I had listened to the radio and I I wanted to see him so badly. And to see him in person, uh, this would have been 1980. And if you know anything about his hairstyle, you can tell the the years that he was performing from his hairstyle. That's when he had the afro or the perm, not Uh an afro, but a perm. We We had great seats and it was like the notes were coming out of the speakers. It was such a tremendous high to see him. And then a year later, I met him in person, and now I've seen him 100 times. Now, what's it like meeting him? And I want to follow that up by saying you and he became friends. And given the fact that you've seen him so many times, I mean, clearly, this is a very close friendship. What's it like meeting him, hanging out with him, and being friends with him? Well, as I said, I've known Gordon for 40 years. And so the first four years I knew him was when he was still drinking. And he's talked openly about this, so I'm not spilling any beans here, but it was a different experience back in those days. It was a little wilder, louder, I guess. But my opinion or my observation of Gordon is that he's really kind of a shy guy. He's not, he doesn't brag. And after he was, he had a very serious medical situation in the early 2000s, right. and he came back and the fans came back. That's when I noticed his demeanor change. He was much more appreciative of the fans that they stuck in there. And again, I've talked to him so many times. He's very generous. He's very patient. A couple of times I've been in line with him and his manager come and say, well, there's people in line. And he'll say, I'm talking to Quentin. (laughs) Oh, wow. So uh, we do not have, I haven't been to his house or anything. We have a relationship at concerts. Okay. Along with getting tickets for 40 years, I've also got backstage passes. Now, unfortunately, the last few times, or the last two times I have seen him, they're not doing meet and greets, which is totally understandable. But I've seen him funny, happy, tired, uh, joking. But 
at the bottom line is Gordon is a very kind, generous, and really a humble guy. I mean, he could brag, but he doesn't. You know, I love the story about Lightfoot. He was criticized in 1976 for writing and releasing the record of the Edmund Fitzgerald because yeah. they said you're making money off a tragedy. And he said, all right. And I know this for a fact because I used to live in Traverse City where the maritime uh, colleges, the Great Lakes Maritime College, where people learn in a two-year program to work on the freighters. So he donated all the profits from what he calls the boat song to those cadets, families, and everyone. He was interviewed a few years later, and the interviewer said, wow, I just read that you gave all this money away for the wreck of the Dan Fitzgerald. And he said, yes, it was the right thing to do. And the interviewer goes, wow, that was a big hit. And Gordon says, one of my biggest. And he goes, well, that was very generous of you. That was a lot of money. And he leaned forward and looked right at the guy and said, I have other songs. <laughs> I just yeah, love that. that. Just, it's just amazing that he will be that detached from something that he gave birth to. Exactly. You know? And of course, we've talked about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald on the show. And you know, the fact that he's donated all the proceeds from that. And he could have chosen not to do that. Of course. Um, but, you know, the fact that he's done it, I think, says volumes about him. Well, today we are talking about The Watchman's Gone, and that's from the Sundown album, which came out in 1974. To me, it's such a quintessential folk rock song. Uh, and that's why I like it. It's really grown on me in the last few weeks. It's acoustically based, it's got some really cool changes between chords i'll talk more about that a little bit later but the rhythm is also very easy to groove to it is rock based jim gordon played drums on it. it it it's one of the relatively few instances where he's used a drummer so why do you like the song in particular the watchman gone has a very personal meaning to me and it's probably my most intimate connection to lightfoot for 12 summers, I worked at a place called Mackwood's Dune Rights. It's on the dunes of Lake Michigan in, in western Michigan. And I had a dear friend who was a roommate and a colleague who was a Navy sailor. When I think of that song, it reminds me of him. And the reason why is while we were together over six summers, one summer, one of his friends died and mm. up in Muskegon, Michigan, and he was transported on a freight train from Muskegon, Michigan, down to Elkhart, Indiana. And my friend Larry was accompanying the body in the casket. And the train is starting to move. And Larry was a big goof, great guy. And, he, and we were saying, hey, going to make the train. He goes, oh, he says, I can do it in my sleep. And he jumped up on the train and got on. So that one moment at a dumpy train yard in Muskegon, Michigan, linked me to this song. And Larry has since passed. Larry was a very heavy drinker, and so there's another connection to the song. Although I want to say he died a sober man. He was very proud of that. But The Watchman's Gone, to me, is an incredible capsule of a philosophy of life. And with that being said, I would also state that I always caution people when you're trying to dissect Lightfoot's songs. As you well know, and his fans know, he doesn't talk a lot about his songs. And this song was not on songbook, so I couldn't find anything on record that he's ever talked about this song. So I did my own digging, and I found a few things. But, you know, there's 100 songs by Lightfoot that I, I love. 
but this one's toward the top. We'll be back to our conversation with Quentin Paul Kuntz about The Watchman's Gone in just a moment. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Have you ever taken a great high school history class? If you have, then you'd probably agree that the one thing that made it so enjoyable was your teacher. And understandably so. At their best, history teachers are vibrant storytellers, leading you on a gripping, fun, fantastic learning journey. But sadly, we know it can be pretty difficult to continue that journey after graduation, with no one there to be your entertaining tour guide through the world of dense, obscure historical research. Fortunately, 20 Minute History is here to help with that. It's the new podcast that aims to be your very own high school history teacher for everything you didn't learn in high school. Come join us as we explore commonly unknown histories in our informative, engaging, and amusing 20-minute episodes. It's 20-Minute History, out now on all your podcasting platforms. It, there's a lot to be said about this song and when we look at the lyrics and I wasn't able to find a whole lot where he had gone on record either. Um, and we are going to be dissecting it a little bit together. Let me ask you this. It's obviously a song that means a whole lot to you and is very close to your heart. Is there a particular setting for you where you would want to listen to it more than others? I mean, a time of day or an activity, or could you listen to it at, at any time in any place? Well, I could, but my preference, which I have done after Larry passed, I uh, I went to his grave. Wow. And I sat staring at the moon. Oh, wow. And I had been on the town. So, so there's a setting there where life is imitating art. Yep. And that's why I was thrilled that you said we could. I could pick this song. I was glad nobody had done it. I'm an emotional guy. I wear my heart in my sleeve, and I'm a writer. I consider myself a wordsmith. And that song and that setting, I'll never forget it. And the moon did rise and um, I did take a rose with me. <laughs> that was very yeah, very smart or maybe just coincidental, but yeah, very cool. No, I was going to say it was very smart. <laughs> this is one of the few Lightfoot songs for me that I can listen to at any time in any place doing anything at all. Whereas other songs, you know, like Don Quixote, I mean, I have to be driving through yeah, uh, you know, the countryside or through the redwoods up in Northern California. Oh, wow. As an example. Okay. But, you know, with this, I could listen to it anywhere. Relatively rare for me because I've have so many feelings about so many songs and they hit me at a particular time, kind of like you, you said with Larry and that whole situation. Some people have said that they've talked to Gordon about the song and he just won't release any sort of details on the genesis of it the only theory that i've come out with that have some sort of fiber to it is that someone said that the song was about the movie emperor of the north which came out prior to the sundown album and it had ernest borgnine and lee marvin in it and i've never seen the movie so i can't really comment on that but there was a rumor that Gord was being considered to write the soundtrack of the movie. So I'm wondering, do you know the film? Do you know anything about that rumor? I've seen the film. Interesting enough, it's under two titles, Emperor of the North and Emperor of the North Pole, which was the first title, but they had to change it because of a copyright thing over at Christmas toy or something. Hmm, but okay. I've seen the movie. It's brutal. 
It's a violent movie. And yes, I think there's credence to that because if you remember, shortly after that movie, Lightfoot was in a movie. I forget the name of it. I, I've seen it. Tracy something, but um, I can't think of the title. But anyway, it, it is true that Gordon has written several songs that were considered for movies, but I don't think any of them ever been in them. But that's what I've heard. The other thing that I think you want to think about this song is that there's a long, long tradition in folklore and folk music about riding the rails. Yes. And um, Merrill Haggard wrote tons of song about this and used to brag that he took a train from Oklahoma to Alaska. And as you know, I would encourage you to see the movie. It's actually a pretty good movie. But the, the, the train companies hired watchmen to kick the bums, the hobos off who were trying to ride for free. Right now, for many years now, they have sensors on the trains and it's almost impossible to get on it without getting caught. In the movie Into the Wild, the main character there, which is based on a true story, the main the author talks about riding the rails and getting beat up pretty good by watchmen. So there's this long tradition of riding the rails and you write about the movie. And of course, you know, Songs about trains are incredible, and Gordon has several, plus Steve Goodman's City of New Orleans. Yeah. And I believe it's Gordon that invented the term and uh, ribbons of steel, or coined the phrase, ribbons of steel. Uh, although I've heard it in other songs, but I believe in one of his songs, he uses that phrase. So I think between those two things, the movie and the tradition of riding the rails to get a free ride, I think that's quite a bit for a foundation for this tune. Well, yeah, that's a huge foundation. I mean, that's practically half a building, not just the foundation. So let's start talking about the lyrics a little bit. Just like birds of a feather, we too have followed the golden sun. It feels so good knowing the watchman's gone. Now, at this point, we don't really know who Lightfoot is singing to. It may be his brother, or it may be just a companion. Following the sun means that they're headed west, but if you're like a bird of a feather, then you, the rhyme is birds of a feather, they migrate together. So they may be going south for the winter. But then, of course, that brings up the whole idea, who or what is the watchman? Now, you talked about the historical reference, okay? And we hear about this a lot during the Great Depression, where hobos are hopping trains. They can't stand the fact that they've lost their jobs. So they're hopping trains to get away from the cities and just pick up whatever odd jobs that they could. My own thinking about who or what the watchman is, is that it's father time or some other force that reminds you of your mortality. And I think about the watchman, a man with a watch saying, okay, your time is up, or you know, you're, you're going to be brought back down to earth and something. Some people have said that the watchman is God. Uh, some people have said the watchman is death. Some people have said the watchman is the devil, but Lightfoot, as you know, doesn't do a lot of metaphysical writing. So I'm wondering if you have any ideas, who is the watchman, according to Quentin? I think the watchman is administration, the government, anybody in charge. And because the line starts out to follow the golden sun, right? Well, to follow the golden sun is a lifestyle. You know, surfers go all around the world to find the perfect wave. People who follow the golden sun are usually not practical people. They're out there for a good time, not a long time. And birds of a feather, like Larry and I were birds of a feather. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. we were you were having fun and, you know, trying to get dates. I mean, that was we were both single men. So 
that's what I see. And the watchman is the one that comes and spoils it all. Whether it's a train ride, an activity, and like you say, it's very much because the watchman on the trains had a watch in their watch pocket. So they were out, yeah, you got to get off or time's over, time to go home. And, you know, in the beginning of our lives, that's our parents, that's our teachers, that's the cops. Okay, get out of here, stop. So I really believe the watchman is a universal term or a metaphor for, you know, you're going to out there and have fun, but someone's going to say it's over. And yes, so, it could be father time. It could be the cops busting you or whatever, but that's who I see is the watchman. So some form of authority. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If I give you a rose, buddy, would you please bury it in the field? And I wonder about this. Why would you bury a rose? I mean, isn't the whole idea of a rose, you're supposed to take it out and smell it and enjoy the color of it. Why would he say bury a rose? I think it's to add beauty into the soil. Okay. All right. That makes sense. I've seen a rose watching it all fall out, fold out, excuse me. It sounds like he's talking about a rose blooming, which is a really amazing experience. If you've ever seen, you know, stop motion film, you know, of a rosebud opening up, it's really, really beautiful to watch. There's a train down at the station. It's come to carry my bones away. Now, you could take that line and put it into any one of a thousand folk songs. Right. Uh, and as you say, Lightfoot has talked about Canadian Railroad Trilogy and Steel Rail Blues and probably a couple of others that I've forgotten here. But it sounds like he's not literally talking about hobos or bums. He's talking about some enjoyable experience. Maybe he's talking about life being the train. What do you think? Well, two things. First off, the rosebud, I think, is a metaphor for a person's life. A rosebud starts out very tight. And when you watch somebody else's life, you're witness to another person's time on this planet. It is, I think, a beautiful metaphor to say, I've watched a rose all fold out. Just like I saw my friend Larry's life in close empirical detail because I was a witness to it. I think that's what the metaphor is. And the train, I think you can say anything about the train and relate it to so many things because, of course, again, as we already talked about, the relationship between trains and folk music. Plus, trains are huge in Canada, um, oh, yeah. more so than they are here. I think Gordon likes the train references. And as you know, there's been many photos of him on train tracks. And, and of course, in the early morning rain, he talks about you can't jump a jet plane like you can a train and all that stuff, a freight train. So. The train fits in perfectly in this song, I think. Well, it's certainly a theme that he comes back to, and it's something that undercuts pretty much every 20th century folk, well, not every, but a whole lot of 20th century folk songs. Two inches on, 21 coaches long, end to end, 21 coaches bend. Do you think there's any significance in the fact that he's naming the number of engines or the number of coaches, or is that just to fill out the song? The only thing I can say to that is you'd probably have to ask him. <laughs> yeah, I, he's not talking. Exactly. But, you know, in prepping for this, I, I kind of knocked myself out trying to figure, okay, 21. I did some numerology analysis and looked them up. I couldn't come up with anything. And, you know, uh, I will give you one hint or one glimpse into, into Lightfoot. You know, the Edmund Fitzgerald was not fully loaded for Cleveland. It, no, was, it was not fully loaded for Detroit. Correct. But he couldn't find a word to rhyme with Detroit, so he picked Cleveland. So yeah. I think this might be another example that 21 may be more lyrical. You know how it is when you're writing anything. It's like, oh, that just doesn't fit. Let me change it. So 
That's my best guess. Well, yeah, and I'm really kind of being a hypercritical English teacher here by saying, you know, <laughs> what does this mean? Probably it doesn't mean anything in particular, but I, you'd have to ask Lightfoot. We'll be back to our conversation with Quentin Paul Kuntz about The Watchman's Gone in just a moment. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Hello, I'm JT, a lifelong student of the paranormal and the unexplained. I've spent over 35 years researching and learning about a wide range of subjects, from UFOs and cryptids to ghosts and the supernatural, from hidden and lost treasures to mankind's mysterious past, and all other things mysterious and Fortean. Each week, I'll bring you some relevant and interesting articles in this genre, as well as a different topic, some you may be familiar with, but many you most likely will never have known existed. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. And let me be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained on the paranormal sun. The Watchmen's out kicking the bums about. Now, that's what railroad watchmen are supposed to do. You know, that's their job. That's what they get paid for is to get the bums or the hobos off the trades because they've been riding the blinds without paying a fare. The only difference being that bums begged and hobos worked, but they were both, you know, taking advantage of the train. If I wait for the right moment, you can bet I'll climb aboard unseen. So now Gord seems to be picturing himself as a hobo trying to get aboard a train while the watchman's not looking. What do you think? I think it means I can get away with something. Yeah, and he is. Life, again, either get on the train without paying, but you, got, you can't be seen. OK, mm-hmm. you've got to get on the train without somebody seeing you. And then before they had the sensors. Once you're on the train, you were probably good to go if, if once the train went going, or at least hopefully. But I think it just means, hey, like anything else, we don't want to get caught. And remember, I believe it's in The House You Live In, but one of the songs, he has a line I wrote down. It says, better take care when bending the law. He has a line in there, bending the law, like not breaking the law, but bending. And I see a, a correlation of this song. Because the watchman's gone is when you get to have fun. I mean, it's a classic, the cat's away, the mice will play. Yeah, I like the way that you filled that out. And that leads us into the next line. If I wait for the right moment, you can bet I'll climb aboard unseen. So the idea is, as you said, you have to get on board when the watchman's not looking. Okay, otherwise you're going to miss the train, which could mean you missed the good times, you missed life, you missed some amazing experience because you were trying to play by the rules too much. But the idea of getting away with something is really present in this part of the song. The watchman's out kicking the bums about, the watchman's out kicking your dreams about. So now the watchman is kicking people's dreams. He's a spoiler of people's ambitions. And he's somebody who's, you know, bringing them down to earth in such a way that their dreams are shattered. And yet, As we know, the song continues because Lightfoot's not going to be denied, you know, (laughs) his experience and making his dream come true. As I leave you in the sunset, got one more nothing I'd like to say. You don't know me, a son of the sea am I. And I thought to myself, is he been lying to this person this whole time? You know, that he's representing himself to be something that he isn't that he belongs on the sea and not on the land. And if he's a son of the sea, why is he riding a train? Because not too many trains on the ocean. I see it as sailors are gone so much. They're gone from their families and friends. And they're, you know, the whole purpose of being a sailor is to be on a boat. 
So when a person comes back from a career in the Navy or as a civilian employee on a boat, a seaman, a sailor, whatever, there's a lot of stuff that sailors do that you will never know. know? (laughs) And I think that's what the line's about. You don't know me because I've been a son of a sailor. I've been on the sea. You haven't seen me. And I love the line where he says, I've got one more nothing to say. In other words, at this point with his friend dead, you know, that's it. I got one more nothing to say, meaning it doesn't mean anything anymore. But it was maybe meant something at that time. So he you think he might be talking to someone who has passed away? I do. Okay, that would make sense. Certainly. One ironic thing. Gordon's middle name is Meredith. And the name Meredith means protector of the sea. It does. That may have been something he just put in for artistic license or to literally put his signature on the song. And I want to give everyone a hint. Do not call him Meredith. Oh, he doesn't (laughs) care for that. He doesn't care for that name. No, I don't imagine. Well, I think it's a bit of a mouthful. The other thing about Gordon real quick is that a lot of people or some people thought that was a made up name. No, that's his real name. Yes, that is his actual real real name. As I say to you, my brother, if you live to follow the golden sun, you better beware knowing the watchman's always there. Okay, so the watchman, father time, God, the devil, some asshole who's trying to spoil your fun and rain on your parade. He's always going to be there to steal your dreams or put a damper on them. This is where the song goes back to the beginning. We are birds of a feather. We follow the golden sun, but that comes at a cost. You're not like a traditional person. You're not an eight to five person. You're probably not sitting at home with slippers on your feet in front of the fire, right? You're out doing things, having fun. But if you are going to follow the golden sun, it comes at a cost. So there's a lack of stability. So you trade stability for adventure. Absolutely. You know, if you think about Western culture, and and many artists have talked about this, One side of the American personality is roots, home, raising a family. The other part of the American spirit is wanderlust. Mainly guys, they're always bugging out, joining something, you know, taking off. And solitude versus community. And I think Gordon's talking about, and he certainly had a lot of good times in his life. If you go out following the golden sun and you want to have a good time, It's a trade-off. I I guess that's the better way to say it's a trade-off. Well, you talk about this thing in the American experience and the fact that you have Western migration for all of those years and that in 1894 or 93 or something about that, Frederick Jackson Turner said the frontier is gone. And now what's going to happen to America because our identity has been so formed by moving West. And now we've gone as far as we can. I don't know if it's true in the Canadian experience so much, but it's certainly something that, you know, is worth commenting on. If you find me feeding daisies, please turn my face up to the sky and leave me be watching the moon roll by. Well, feeding daisies is a metaphor for being dead So he wants to be left with his face to the sky instead of pointed in one geographical direction or another. I mean, at the end of Robin Hood, when Robin Hood is dying, he tells little John, lay me with my face toward the east. Yeah. And Lightfoot saying, no, I want to be facing straight up, you Mm -hmm. know, so that I can look at the moon. 
Now, of course, he's dead, you know, at that point. So on one level, it doesn't really matter because he won't really be able to see anything except in some spiritual way. But it's symbolic for his desire to enjoy nature and to enjoy the passage of time. I totally agree because, again, Lightfoot does a great job with kind of toward the end of the song, wrapping everything up. And this is another one where, yeah, the way I'm going to be in eternity in the ground is the same way I live my life. Even in death, I'm going to follow the golden sun or the silver moon. Beautifully said. Hey, that's great. Whatever I was, you know it was all because I've been on the town washing the bullshit down. And he's been partying and enjoying life as long as he could. Of course, he writes this when he's still in his party years. This is long before he gets sober. Washing the bullshit down with liquor and the bullshit being the necessities of life, the necessaries of life or the stuff he's been forced to do. You know, the idea is suck it up. So he's going to at least follow that up with a couple of shots of good bourbon. The spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, right? Well, uh, you have a correction there. It would not be bourbon. It would be Canadian whiskey. I stand corrected. <laughs> but it would Come be on, neither. That's right. <laughs> but it'd be neither right now. Well, no, no, no. He hasn't drank for many years. But uh, you're, you're spot on there. I've been on the town. Well, anybody that's a partier has been on the town, had too much to drink. They're staggering back, and you can kind of see that here they are, hungover or still drunk. And again, these things, these lifestyle decisions always come at a cost. The watchman's out kicking your dreams about. It feels so good knowing the watchman's gone. It's like a song knowing the watchman's gone. To me, it seems like the watchman isn't gone. He's just momentarily distracted. But Gord took advantage of the fact that he didn't get caught, you know, that he was able to get away with things. Well, I also read in that song that now he's dead. There is no watchman. It feels so good. I don't have to report to anybody. I don't have to try to sneak around. I can, I'm done. No watchman is over me now. So So, this is kind of a posthumous song then. I think so. Mm -hmm. Um, I just love the fact that Gordon doesn't give us too much. And, And many famous artists like Bob Dylan, they're, they don't like explaining it because I think they really enjoy the fact that you interpret it. You hear it. What does it mean to you? Who cares what I thought? I mean, there are exceptions to that. But again, I've I've known Gordon for so long, and I've, I've I think I've written or excuse me read everything that's been written about him that I know of, and even speculation and all these things. But you know, these songs, like any great artist. These songs are his children. He has favorite children and not so favorite children, but he's written so many songs. You know, he found a bunch of songs to do his last album uh, solo. The thing I love in the movie or the documentary that just came out a year ago is he says, you've got to put in the work. And he says that a lot. And so I don't think this song was written in a few minutes. I think he put a lot of thought into it, but he's such a master craftsman when it comes to songs that for him, it's like riding a bicycle again. So, Well, yeah, I mean, I get the impression that Dylan can turn out songs a lot more quickly, but there's not as much, you know, real intensive perfectionism with that because Dylan clearly has sold more records than Lightfoot, but the, he's also had some real duds. 
Uh, oh, gosh, yes. And Bob Dylan has come out and said many times that he loves Gordon Lightfoot. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think yes. it's that's a yep. testament to the amount of true quality that Lightfoot really works hard at putting out, you know, really, really high quality stuff. Whereas Dylan, I think, has gotten a little complacent at times in his career where he's just said, OK, well, I've got a bunch of songs and I know that they'll buy that people will buy them. So I'm just going to throw them out there. Well, with Dylan, he's all over the place. It always has been, and he doesn't like being put in a box. But with Lightfoot, I agree, his craftsmanship is always spot on. I really, the only song I've ever heard that people have criticized that said it was what they call a throwaway was Canary Yellow Canoe, which I actually like. But it is kind of a, just a fun song. It's a quick ditty. It's not one of his typical songs. But I can't really give you many Lightfoot songs that I think were just laissez-faire in their creation. I think Lightfoot has known for a long time and still does. He knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. And I think he's much more directed in his muse than Dylan or Neil Young or other people who have come out of that same sort of mold. We'll be back to our conversation with Quentin Paul Kuntz about The Watchman's Gone in just a moment. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Hi, this is Audie Martello, the host of the Mostly Folk Podcast, a 60-minute foray into the music we all love. You will hear newly released albums, classic folk, country, and bluegrass music, as well as some traditional music that may or may not be true to the genre. Sometimes irreverent, often opinionated, but always entertaining. You may even hear a radio magic trick every so often, as well as numerous interviews via Zoom and telephone with established as well as indie artists. Mostly Folk is available wherever you listen to podcasts and always at mostlyfolk.org. So the song was on Sundown, as we said. Okay, that was his 10th album. My favorite musical aspect of the song has to be the chord progression. I love minor thirds. And so he goes from a one chord to a five chord, and then that dung, dung, dung into what I think is a G um, from there. And so that has, the song has some great transitions. And I've heard it in Neil Young's songs. I've heard it in Harry Chapin's songs. I've heard it in Beatles songs. And I just thought I've always really liked those kinds of transitions. What to you is your favorite musical aspect of it? I think it's the 12 string. You know, there's not a whole lot of major people out there playing 12 strings, particularly now. And, and of course, for many years now, they can recreate those songs on some type of keyboard, some type of electronic keyboard. Not the way you can an acoustic 12 string. Lightfoot used to have a steel pedal guitars, peewee in there for many mm -hmm. years. Yeah. And that's yeah. been replaced for many years, decades now with, um, with Mike Hefferman and, and keyboards. But I agree with you. The chord progression is quite complicated in the song, but I think it's a 12 string. The first few notes of the song is the guitar. And I think it sets the whole tone for the entire song. You talked about people not using 12 strings and it is, to be fair, it's a complicated instrument in that it produces so much sound mm -hmm. and you've got to be really careful the way you tune it. You have to be very meticulous because now you've got twice as many strings you have to take <laughs> yeah. care of and they're in octaves 
four out of the six sets. So you get one of those wrong and you've blown it. So, I mean, I love the 12 string. I've had one in the past. I wish I had one again and I wish more people used them, but it's understandable why it's an instrument that's no longer in vogue. But he did play the 12 string. Um, He played six string on the album and he also played some high strung uh, guitars. Terry Clements played the lead uh, acoustic on this. Red Shea was not on this particular cut. John Stockfish, whom I thought had left the band by that time, was playing bass on this. It was not Rick Haynes. Nick DeCaro, whom we've heard many times doing arranging and orchestration and piano. Jim Gordon playing drums, as I said. And then Milt Holland played percussion on this. And I don't hear any congas on this particular song. There might have been way down in the mix, but he also appears on the record. The song has been played at last count 600 times in concert, not counting the ones that happened since I did my research for this. The first one was in October of 1974. So that's during the time that he is promoting the Sundown album. And then he said he played it in Akron. The time before that, that was sort of on record, he played it on April 22nd of this year. So it's certainly one that he's bringing out. uh, And he's probably continuing to play it on many of the shows uh, on the tour. Now, Quentin, I guess what I wanted to know is... Is this a song that's been sort of a standard? Has he played it more times than not in the hundred times that you've seen him? Yes. Years will go by with a Lightfoot tour and you won't hear any one song. I mean, there'll be several songs you won't hear. Then all of a sudden they're back in. I mean, I probably saw, I bet the 30 uh, first concerts I went to, he closed with Old Dan Records. Hmm. That what you knew. I would turn to whoever I'd take the concert and I, he'd, they'd say, well, this is our last song. I said, it's going to be all Dan Records. And it was. And then all of a sudden that song is gone. At least I haven't heard it for probably in the last 10 years, at least not as the closer. But I don't think I heard this in the beginning. But since my relationship with Larry and this song means so much, starting in probably 86, 84, somewhere in there. Of course, I always perk up when I hear it. This song, I think, is very close to Seven Island Suite, which are pretty complicated songs, and they're both on the same album, but he doesn't play them real often, but I have heard Watchmen's Gone more probably in the last 10 years than they did in the first 30. That brings up an interesting question. The Sundown album had two big singles on it, the title track and Carefree Highway, but this almost sounds like it could have been a single also. And I'm wondering if you have an angle on this, why do you think the company was, I don't know if that was Reprise or UA or whoever his label was at that particular time, but why don't you, why do you think they didn't put this one out as a single too? Because they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) All right. That's a good answer. Um, (laughs) Yeah. To me, I mean, this seems like it could have been a hit in and of itself. But it was not released as a single. The album, of course, went to number one in Canada, number one in the U.S., number 13 in Australia. For some reason, I cannot understand. It did not chart in the U.K. at all. And the song itself has been re-recorded by three different artists that I know of, one of whom is John McLaughlin, who I've had on the show and I'd like to have back again. Um, J.P. Cormier and the White Knight Instrumental are the other two that I've found. Are there any other covers that you know of besides just people jamming because they happen to know it? 
one group, and I'm not familiar with the group, it's called All the Blazes. And they covered it and they added a fiddle. So it has that more traditional folk tune. If you go online and just Google covers of the Watchmen's Gone, it comes up. And on that list, only Gordon's and All the Blazes is listed. The lead singer in All the Blazes, and this was recorded over 20 years ago, I believe, in the 90s. The lead singer sounds pretty darn close to Lightfoot. He has a very nice voice, but they add a fiddle. Fiddle can be a really cool instrument because you obviously can play it more like a violin or you can play it like a fiddle. But it's a traditional bluegrass type fiddle added to it. And I think it works really well. I'm not familiar with the other covers. That's the only one I could find online. Okay. But I like it a lot. Well, Quentin, this has been so much fun. And to talk to somebody who has been and seen Lightfoot in concert and had all of these experiences with him and is certainly closer to him on some level than the average fan. Who would you like to hear cover this song from modern music, um, if anybody? Or does it, you know, we take the covers that we have and the rest of it just stands alone? Wow, that's a really good question. I haven't put much thought into it. I'd like to hear a few female artists cover it. No one comes up to my mind right away, but there's also that purity of, I mean, this is a Lightfoot song. I don't care who covers it. It's going to be a Lightfoot song. But I think it might be interesting in a female voice, just because the song is somewhat machismo. And I, I think it'd be interesting to hear a, a, a female voice in it or that feminine perspective, if you will. I would love to hear Indigo Girls cover this. Oh, um, that's an excellent choice. Yeah, because I don't know that. I mean, I haven't kept up with a lot of their records real recently, but they don't tend to do a whole lot of other people's work, um, at least not in studio albums. They've done some in live records, um, but I would love to hear them do it. And then I wish that Nancy Griffith had done it before she. Oh, did. excellent choice. Yes. OK, well, as we're wrapping up here. Let me ask you this, Quentin. I mean, I'm giving you a hypothetical answer. For your 101st concert, <laughs> wherever that is, you are given the chance to tell Gordon, this is the song I want you to sing first in the opening set in Concert 101. What would you choose? Early Morning Rain. I think that's his definitive song. The imagery in that song is off the charts. You're there on that runway. You are as cold and drunk as you can be, and you can't get anywhere, so you just got to start walking. And, of course, so many people have covered that song. Johnny Cash does a great version of it. And if you'd allow me, since I'm on your podcast, I'd really like to thank Gordon and uh, Ann Liebold in his office. And I would be amiss if I didn't mention the great Barry Harvey, who was the man that set me up with tickets and backstage pass for so many long he was the new road manager for Gordon Lightfoot when I met him in 1982. And Gordon turned him and said, here's my new friend. My nickname is Q for Quentin. Mm -hmm. And he goes, he's on the list. And Barry turned to me and said, you're on the list? Or he said to Gordon, Are you, he's on the list. He goes, yeah, he's on the list. Anytime he wants to come. So I also want to thank Gordon for hitting on my girlfriend back in the green room. <laughs> and I had to go look for her. And so I went back in the green room and there he is. He's got his arm around. I don't think anybody's helping, but it was this surreal moment when I didn't know whether to get mad because he was hitting on my girlfriend who was very attractive or 
and I was incredibly enthralled to meet him. (laughs) (laughs) But they both stood up and he said, oh, I think I better give her back to you. And then that's when he said, you're going to come and see me again. And a quick funny story is I said, yeah, we've got tickets for tomorrow in Kalamazoo. And he goes, no, we're in Grand Rapids. And then he turned and goes, "What? whatever, wherever. <laughs> that was back when he was doing 200 shows a year. Quentin, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been a lot of fun. And I'd love to have you back on the show sometime. Yeah, let me pick another song. And um, I like the fact that you made me do my homework. And again, for all your listeners, treasure Lightfoot, treasure his music. There is literally no one like him. Couldn't have said it better myself. Quentin Paul Kuntz. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com, and our Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Our next episode will be coming out on or about the third week in June, and my guest will be Gino DiPiero, or Doc G as we call him, Just and he'll be talking about the influences of Gordon Lightfoot on his music and his favorite Gordon Lightfoot song. Until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. 